Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, here we go. Stag body game. Am I going first? I oh, am. Go I on. am. I've actually got two, but I'm only going to give you one this week. I'm so far <laughs> ahead here. Okay. <laughs> this one concerns a, a favourite literary uh, theme of, of of yours and mine, actually. Oh, well, mine's literary too, but go on. Yeah, this is interesting. Oh, well, let's it's hope, a literary special. Let's hope we haven't dropped on the same one. This one uh, refers to that home, that club, that social club, that gentleman's club for feckless second sons of the aristocracy. P.G. Woodhouse's The Drones Club. Very okay. good. Uh, you know, the home Gussie of, Finknottle. The That's home of, g- g- obviously, very well-known people like Gussie Finknottle, Oofy Prosser. And Oofy like, Prosser. <laughs> and Toppy Glossop and the like. Beans and Crumpets. Yeah, go on. But, yeah. but... What you may not know is there are lots of less well-known members of the Drones Club, but nonetheless existed. And so you have to tell me whether these people are musicians who one time or another played with uh, significant groups or lesser-known members of the Drones. Oh, that's brilliant. Are you ready? fantastic. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Here's the first one. Biscuit Biscuiton. Biscuit Biscuiton. Is that a musician or a member of PG Woodhouse's Drones Club? Are you suggesting there really could have been a that's that's fantastic. I don't <laughs> I really don't know that. That's but I, I think it's too it's too arch to be a rock musician. I'm saying PG Woodhouse. It is indeed the Viscount Biscuiton, heir to the Earl of Hoddesdon, known to his friends as Biscuit. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, this is that's the first one. Here so we go. Good. Marmaduke Dawson the Fourth. Marmaduke Dawson the Fourth. Is that a musician? That's a rock musician. Uh, do you know where from? No, but I remember that name from somewhere. It, go on, where is it? It's American. He was a, he was a guitarist with a new rise of the purple. Sound. Perfect. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Which is just brilliant. These are superb, Dave. Okay. So funny. Here we go. Boff Wally. Boff Wally, member of the Drones or lesser-known musician? 
Boff Wally, I would have thought, no. must have been in Glenn Cornick's Wild Turkey or something. <laughs> he's, a, he's clearly a rock musician. Boff! How could he not be a rock musician called Boff? Okay, yeah, he's a guitarist with Chumbawamba. Oh, fantastic! Uh, that's fantastic! <laughs> How on earth did you find these? This is so good. I don't know what you Googled to find out oh, aristocratic God. names. So, no, go on, go on. This is brilliant. Uh, okay. Boko Fiddleworth. Boko Fiddleworth. Is that a drone? He is a drone. I remember Fiddleworth, I'm afraid, but that's fantastic. That's Woodha so good. Woodhouse says he presents to the beholder a face like an intellectual parrot. Okay. <laughs> Monty Oxymoron. Monty Oxymoron. Member well, of the Browns or a musician? Oxymoron is too too complicated for a PG Woodhouse. That must be a musician. But it wouldn't be a 60s or 70s musician called Oxymoron. It must again be in the it's 80s, 90s. 90s musician. Yeah, well, he played keyboards with the damned. That's, all That's fantastic. That's Monty Oxymoron. That's so good. Okay, Freddie Bullivant. Freddie Bullivant. Is he uh, a less-known member of the Drones or a musician? Freddie I think he's Bullivant. probably a drone, actually, but uh, I, I, go on, which... He was, he was a drone. Good at this polo. so good. <laughs> like, uh, listen to this. Good at polo, otherwise unmarked by enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that really unmarked by enterprise? That's so funny. Oh, good grief. He's uh, a brilliant. Okay, Toby Horsnail. Toby Horsnail. Member of the Drones or a musician? Or drummer of Budgie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, he was probably in, uh, yeah, Griffin. Griffin is the sort of group you might have been in, actually. Yeah, I think he's a rock musician. Uh, I think you're beating me all ends up this week. He's no, an occa occasional vocalist with the Enid. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so good. And uh, I'm going to give you one final one. Okay. Monty Bing. Monty Bing. Monty Bing, that could really easily be either, couldn't it? Monty Bing. Um, I, I, I'm going to say drone, but I... I, I You've beaten me, absolutely. No, no. <laughs> You've given me a hide in this week. That is absolutely he's, inspired. He's, That's he's the so funny. He's the man whose sartorial tastes encouraged Bertie to get a suit, which Jeeves said would make him look like a bookie. <laughs> that is so... You're going to have to tell me later, uh, you know, off-air how you did that. You must have kind of Googled rock musician and Monty or whatever. You must have put in... You must have put I in did. posh and That's aristocratic I names. I, found, I, I got, got loads of first <laughs> names that I thought, wouldn't it be funny if there was a, a, a musician called, you know... With a surname Oxymoron. Oofy or whatever. That's right. Those and are that, brilliant. That's how I found it. But I didn't win, so anyway... No. Yeah. Oh, well, look, this is uh, this is literary, too, and from an original idea by listener Pete Selby, okay. which I've tinkered with slightly. OK, OK. And it's it, now, now Morrissey songs tend to contain flowery aphorisms and witty and waspish philosophical pronouncements right. somewhat in the shadow of his great hero, Oscar Wilde. Yes. But yes. can you tell the difference? Be prepared to play Morrissey's song title or quote from Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. So the first one is okay. My life is a succession of people saying goodbye. Is that wild or is that a Morrissey song? My that's, life is a succession of people saying goodbye. That's Morrissey. It is. It's from You Are the Quarry. Very good. Mm. Okay. It's hard to walk tall when you're small. Wow. 
I don't know, Morrissey. It's, I get it's Morrissey. I thought you might be thrown by that because uh, he's so enormously tall. But yeah, no, it's Morrissey from the Swords compilation. Okay, no good deed goes unpunished. I know that it's Oscar Wilde. It is Oscar Wilde. You can kind of hear a backbeat to it, though, can't you? Sort <laughs> yeah. of tortuous, you know, not yeah. quite rhythmic uh, arrangement of it. You know, noise is the best revenge. That's got to be Morrissey. It, it, it is Morrissey, actually. It's an unreleased song from a radio session on the Janice Long show. OK. I'm not young enough to know everything. Oh. That's Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde. We're having 100% success with each other's questions. <laughs> that is Oscar Wilde. OK. There is a place in hell for me and my friends. Oh, now. Wow. Hmm. Oscar Wilde? Actually, it's Morrissey, but in fact, Oscar oh. Wilde did say, I can't remember who it was, though. Oscar Wilde said something almost exactly the same. <laughs> See, like, who'd want to go to hell because none of my friends would be there, I think is that's, what it is. That's the key thing. Morrissey obviously just leaves through books of Oscar Wilde yeah, quotations yeah, yeah. I think, that goes, if only I could be quite as, <laughs> quite as witty as that. How can I arrange that and pass it off as my own? Exactly. I think it was something like, who'd go to hell because none of my friends were there? Yeah, but Morrissey's always called, there's a place in hell for me and my friends. Okay, the ninth one is, if you don't like me, don't look at me. Oh, that's good. I'm going to Oscar Wilde. No, it's, no, it's Miles, actually. It's, okay, the, it's the B-side of Youngest Was the Most Loved. All right. And the last one, actually, which I'm sure you'll get, is, is uh, Only Dull People Are Brilliant at Breakfast. That's got to be Oscar Wilde. It is. Actually, rather gave it away there, but I'm sure you'll get it. because clearly breakfast. If, it, if I meant Morrissey, you wouldn't do <laughs> It wouldn't have been a You're breakfast. You're not being a Morrissey, world, world Morrissey right. expert. That is fantastic. Those were very good. Yours was absolutely <laughs> superb. The drones, that's hilarious. Well, I love I, it. I've got one ready for next week already. Good work. That's I very mean, good work. Uh, Ahead of the game. Yeah, very yeah, good. yeah. So this week... Uh, you're our correspondent on the presidential inauguration because you watched all of it, didn't you? I well, I say, watched all of it, yeah. I watched the first bit as they were all coming in. I was watching C-SPAN, the American you know, political channel, which had just uh, just the arrivals without announcements, yeah. which I quite like because you were trying to work out who those people were when they were all wearing masks over half their faces. Yeah, so that was exciting. Spot American politicians. That's quite interesting. And I watched, I watched Kamala Bernie Sanders Harris. unrecognizable. I watched Kamala Harris being in, in, inaugurated, and then a, a voice from above said, "Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Lopez." And I thought, "Oh no, click off!" I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't think we need showbiz of these things. But theatrical. Yes, a, a theatrical performance will be on the cards. So interesting how the people who do those things are the people who can, can really sing, and they make you, they remind you of the fact. Lady Gaga being a really good, who I thought was fantastic. I love Lady Gaga, but she really can sing. And in her concerts, there are the whole episodes where it's just her on her own, kind of improvising to make the point that she's not Madonna. That's the thing, isn't it? Oh, like, Madonna, you know, it's interesting that Madonna has never done an inauguration because Madonna, obviously, Madonna can sing, but her vocals is not the strong suit, is it? Right. I mean, there may well be a lot of uh, a lot of assistance uh, technologically. She never exposes herself in situations like that, you know. All right, right. But no, I thought she was. I thought Garth Brooks was fine, and, and Spring, Springsteen has, has just become the new Dylan, isn't he? Dylan won't do these things anymore. Dylan's meant to be the guy, as he was at Live Aid, who finishes these events with a fabulous uh, minor chord folk song. <laughs> you know, about, isn't he? About, uh, about uh, you know, about, about suffering in American life or whatever. 
But uh, but Springsteen was fantastic. No, I think the real star was Amanda Gorman. Did you see that? I know. No, the no. poet. Right. I thought she was extraordinary. You know, there's this girl. It's the, that's the thing about the modern world of social social media is that you can go literally over oh, in seconds from being reasonably well known over there, which she was, to um, to being enormously globally internationally famous in in six minutes that it took her to do that poem. You know, she put on 1.1 million Twitter followers in about 24 hours. Phenomenal, isn't it? Makes you sick, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And her, and her books, she's got these two poetry books out. Went to number one and number two on Amazon. Phenomenal. <laughs> Makes me double sick. Double sick. <laughs> no, but come on, the big news in, in your camp is Dolly Parton, sure. Well, yeah. Go I, on. I, 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 I say something about my, my granddaughters, which is, and I'm not going to say any cute things kids say or that they're amazing or anything like that, but I've got, I've got three-year-old granddaughters, twin granddaughters. And they've developed their, their first musical obsession. And who is it? Is it Taylor Swift? No. Is it Stormzy? No. It's Dolly Parton. And I, you know, they come, they come around to this house and they come up to my workroom at the top of the house and they go, play Dolly, play Dolly. And I thought, what's this talking about? And uh, I asked my daughter, she said, oh, it's Dolly Parton. I said, what, why, where have they got Dolly Parton from? And I said, well, somebody bought them a book for Christmas called Little People, Big Dreams, which is a series of these things, which are bestsellers for small children at the moment, where they're kind of, they're, they're cute little stories about the struggle, the adver- struggles against adversity of, of heroines, you know, I don't know. I've seen it's RuPaul, isn't it? Frida Kahlo, oh, Aretha okay. Franklin, Agatha yes. Christie, Billie Jean King, <laughs> Pele. I was amazed, I look at the, at Bowie, there's one of Bowie as well. Yeah. It's really it's interesting. Just, and I thought, why have they fixed upon Dolly Parton? And uh, so they come up and they demand that I play nine to five or Jolene or whatever, you know, just four or five of their better known songs, all of which are wildly different in style, really. You know, so yeah, it's, it's not the sound of, of it at all. But what struck me uh, when I spent some time with them and they, they were enthusing about Dolly Parton and jumping up and down, to the sound of nine to five is is the key key thing about Dolly Parton that is immensely appealing to three-year-old girls do you know what it is it's going to be something like the hat she wears or the hair no. or, or well, the we'll, come, we'll come to that in a second yeah it's this Mark she's called Dolly oh <laughs> she's called Dolly if you're a three-year-old girl what's not to like about somebody called Dolly that's so, true you know what I mean because they like dolls, you know, they're in that phase. Yeah. And um, and so this is this is a, a living dolly, you know, who who can be summoned on the television or the computer by the click of a mouse in any way. And 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 the beauty of Dolly Parton is, if you look at her at pretty much any stage over the last forty years, she largely looks the same. Looks exactly then, the same. Because she arrived at that look. Pretty much like at the same time as Barbie arrived as her look and has, has stuck to it, you know, pretty rigidly ever since, hasn't she? Completely. I'll Absolutely. Laced up rhinestone top, you know. I'll, yeah. bit of, I'll bit of facial reconstruction, you know, aside. She largely looks the same, you know. I'm looking at her the other day. She's 75 or something. She, she looks is. like she did when she was 50. And uh, and um, the other thing where it made, it made me think of was that time I went to see her at Hammersmith Odeon, which must be about 15 years ago now. 
our friend Brent Hansen took me to see her at, at Hammersmith when she played with a bluegrass band. She was making a kind of one of her occasional detours back into traditional music. And, um, and there she was on stage, Hammersmith. And, and she's such an extraordinary figure because, you know, everybody wants to claim Dolly Parton, don't they? Everybody wants to yeah. think Dolly Parton's on our team, you know, whether, whether we're kind of old-fashioned Wembley Country Festival people or cutting-edge, you know, time-out people or everybody in between. Everybody wants a bit of Dolly Parton. And the people who really wanted a piece of Dolly Parton on this particular occasion were a bunch of, small bunch of what I can only describe as militant lesbians who, who had contrived a rather half-hearted stage invasion at some, at some point <laughs> from the side. They appeared from the side and headed towards Dolly, the, the figure of Dolly who was in the middle of the stage with a band around her. And at this point, a, a minder who'd obviously been watching the scene unfold and thought this could happen. So a large number of them broke, got well, onto the stage. Two, and a, two or three coming towards her. Minders interceded. One of them held them back while the other man, minder picked up Dolly pretty much like you might a doll. Okay. Yeah. And, and put pretty much put her under his arm and went off the stage carrying her because the truth about Dolly Pun is particularly when she's in her full stage regalia, there is no part of her that moves independently. <laughs> so I'm perfectly serious here. It was like somebody removing a dummy from a, a, a mannequin, a, dark, a, a shop mannequin. window. Absolutely. You know, in Are You Being Served? Yes, yeah, so a completely <laughs> stiff figure <laughs> under one arm. Grizzly right. old caretaker used to, used to come on, you know, janitor figure used to yeah. come on all the time, carrying some figure under his arm. It was just like that. And as she went off, she was kind of sideways, you know, smiling at the audience. I'll be back in a minute. Waving. That's fantastic. So, you know... That's my point about why Dolly Parton is immensely appealing to three-year-old girls. She's called Dolly, and she looks That's like That's brilliant. Everybody and, wants to adopt her. You're so absolutely. right. I remember seeing, I remember seeing her in, in the Central Park in summer 1973, and she was on with Tammy Wynette at a concert. It was so funny. Oh, the whole of New York had turned up, and New York was dressed in check shirts and cowboy hats, yeah. you know, playing at being kind of country fans for the day. Nobody had come in from outside of New York to see this entirely New York event. Because they kind of like the idea that it's the unvarnished opposite of showbiz. Actually, it's just as varnished and just as showbiz. As it's else. very, very varnished. I know. It's I know. the most showbiz thing you've ever seen. I know. The interesting pop fact about Dolly Parton, I always thought, was uh, was uh, um, I, I will always love you. When when Colonel Tom Parker didn't he, he say to her, um, this is really really early on that Elvis wanted to cover it, but Elvis wanted to cover it. On the condition that they could get fifty percent of the publishing. Oh well, he always because obviously that. it would be a hit, which he used to do all the time, you know. Yeah. And she very wisely held out and said, "No, I'll make it my own or, or whatever." Second Fantastic. pop, second pop fact about "I Will Always Love You," written the same day as Jolene. Oh really? God, that was a, <laughs> that was that's, an earner, wasn't that's, it? That's an, she earned that, her call that, that's, that's a productive that Tuesday. That's incredible. <laughs> well. God bless her. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Phil Spector, um, 
I can, I can remember so clearly um, when Phil Spector kind of entered my life uh, because he was, the, he was the first producer I was ever ever aware of. I suppose that was the that was the really striking thing was that uh, you know you take those Phil Spector records and obviously hundreds of people were involved in them, writing them, singing them, playing on them, engineering yeah, four them, four bass whatever. guitars, ten guitars, absolutely three drummers, yeah. And but his the clever thing he did was he positioned himself as the producer. Yeah. And so he became more famous than than the record than the people who made the records. I, no, I agree. I was aware of George Martin only through the bit of Mandy. I was only mid-60s when I first heard of Phil Spector, so I was only been 12 or whatever. But uh, I, I was aware of George Martin as a facilitator for the Beatles, but I wasn't sure, actually, that's what a producer did. But no. Phil Spector was the first one you thought, right, this is the this is the orchestrator, this is the director of the architect of the entire thing. And yeah, it was in 65 was the big breakthrough, wasn't it? Was that was that well, when Andrew uh, Alden uh, took uh, out uh, that uh, ad? He'd had the, no, there'd been hits before then, you know, the kind of the Ronettes and um and the crystals and so forth, you know, because it's also a reminder of the fact that people very often say, oh, before the Beatles, there was nothing, you know, post rock and roll, before the Beatles, there was nothing. Not true. There was Phil Spector, there was Motown, there was Roy Orbison, there was the Everly Brothers, you know, loads, loads of things. And, um, but uh, he, uh, he, he came to Britain quite a, quite a bit in those early days of uh, the kind of Beatlemania and Ready Steady Go and the Rolling Stones and all that, you know, he's, he famously, I think he plays Maracas, doesn't he? On an early Rolling Stones single, I think. I think he does. Yeah, well, there's, um, a, there's an extract of Craig, Craig Brown's book, isn't it, where, where he arrives in a party with, with Ronnie, uh, Ronnie, soon to be Spectre, and, and John Lennon tries to cop off with her. Well, yeah. Absolutely. That was in 64, I think, yeah. And, um, and he, uh, you know, he was so kind of publicity conscious that he, he made sure that the, the Ronettes went back um, on an earlier flight so that he could fly back into the States on the same flight that brought the Beatles into the States because he knew so he, it was almost like, oh, look what I brought you, America. Completely. Back, you know, because he, he was such a kind of... Um, There's a lot of it. Ringo said he was such a such a, an anxious flyer that he never sat down. He just paced up and down. So he said he walked to America. <laughs> he just walked up and down the corridor of the plane. But, but yeah, thing, brilliant piece of engineering. Mike. But the thing I was thinking about was probably, probably a year later, actually. It is definitely a year later. In January 1965... Um, You've Lost That Loving Feeling comes out in the UK. And it comes out, I think, probably slightly ahead in a version by Scylla Black. And of course, Scylla Black had, you know, her early hits were all kind of Dionne Warwick song, you know, yeah. Burt Bacharach and David, things that have been a hit in the States for all other countries, for other people. Yeah, and, anyone um, who had a heart was Dionne Warwick song. Yeah, it? and... Yeah. Um, and so you've lost love and feeling seems to be the same thing. And I remember hearing the Righteous Brothers version, which used to be played by Tony Hall, who only died last year, I think. Tony Hall, who was the great kind of plugger, scene maker, radio DJ, used to do a program on Radio Luxembourg on Saturday evening, which was the first hip radio I ever remember hearing. And he would play largely American records. And he was the one who played you know, Love and Feeling the Righteous Brothers. And he thought, my God, this is extraordinary. 
And then you heard the Scylla Black version, you thought, well, obviously Scylla will have the hit, you know, because she's Scylla. She, by then, she was already the nation's sweetheart, you know, and who are these guys? You know, they're an American record company. Uh, it won't happen. And Scylla goes in the charts and, and so forth. And, and I, I can well remember the feeling. I can remember seeing in Mr. Heath's maths class. <laughs> I really can remember this, thinking... And I'd looked at the chart, the record mirror chart, and thought, no, she's gonna get they're gonna get over Silla Black will go to number one and they'll they'll yeah. just be forgotten. And there was, you know, I, I've actually got the chart in front of me here from January the 30th, 1965, the record mirror chart, which has Go Now by the Moody Blues at number one. It has You've lost that loving feeling in Silla Black at number two, and you've lost that loving feeling by the Righteous Brothers at number three. Extraordinary. And you thought. Well, it was only one number one. And the following week, the Righteous Brothers were at number one. I don't remember the feeling of kind of, you know, you know, when you're 40. There is a God. You always want to feel it's fair, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, Righteous Brothers had gone to number one. It's still a black record, just fell away, and nobody talked, talked about it anymore. I can remember that feeling. And, and a lot of that was to do with the fact that Andrew Oldham, had apparently out of his own pocket financed um, a load of ads in the in the in the music papers, and uh, and he's I'm reading one here that he took an ad saying this advert is not for commercial gain is as taken as something must be said about the great new Phil Spector record the Righteous Brothers singing you've lost that loving feeling already in the American top 10. This is Spectre's greatest production. The last word in tomorrow's sound today, exposing the overall mediocrity of the music industry and typifying his greatness. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but wasn't it, that part that helped go on. That was a bit of positioning by Oldham himself. Oh, wasn't God. It? I mean, because oh, yeah. he, you know, if you look at those ads for Rolling Stone records and there's one in the in Rolling Stone records, there's one in that same issue, actually at the bottom, it says produced by uh, Andrew uh, Lou Gold, them for impact sound so he himself was trying to position himself as the next spectre i think the next kind of well producer, yeah i don't know yeah well he did they not long after that he did those uh the andrew luke oldham orchestra's version yeah yeah of songs, which is what I ended up as on sample verve, by verve, the verve yeah uh, many many years later because spectre had done that he'd if you looked on the on the big side of all those early spectre huge hit singles which he didn't write because they were Ellie Greenwich songs or Carol King songs or whatever Brill building songs. Yeah, uh, he he would uh, he would uh, the B side was always the Phil Spector Orchestra, so that he could get paid as much as as much as the A side. Um, but you know, I, I have to think that the, the the thing about it is that nothing better um, underlines the difference between a song and a record than those early. Absolutely, because they're dramas, aren't they? Complete they're, drama. They're a production dramas. Yeah, total drama. They, you, 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 you listened to them with all your concentration, didn't you? Because they, they weren't just background; they utterly dominated. You know, Completely, they were utterly larger than life. And justice um, prevailed. It got to number one. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's been all sorts of stuff about him. Anthony De Curtis, uh, the Rolling Stone writer, sort of reposted some of his um, interview with him. I think in the eighties, nineties, and. Uh, those are full of extraordinary details. One is that Spectre takes John Lennon on his birthday to, on Lennon's birthday, to a Parisian restaurant. And in the middle of the meal, um, violinists appear. There's a little string quartet playing in the restaurant. And the two violinists are sent over to play Yesterday 
at their table. Can you imagine? It's just awful on every level, isn't it? It's ruined it for them. It's ruined it for all the other people in the restaurant who now have to acknowledge that John Lennon and Phil Spector are there, which they didn't know, probably didn't care about anyway. And third, he's played yesterday. Oh, Can you imagine? God. Imagine what a birthday wrecking experience, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, my, my memory of, uh, of Spector particularly is the Q Awards. Do you remember yeah. that in 1997? Oh, I, I, I mean, I thought that he was a good idea to get along because I thought, well, Phil Spector, you know, everyone will be thrilled. I, I completely misread the fact that actually his his reputation was in a real time. No one was talking about him at all, actually, in 97. But I spent three or four months trying to get him to come. And Radiohead were there, and The Prodigy, and Pete Townsend, and Roger Daltrey, Ken Russell, Spike Milligan, McCartney. And I thought, this is going to be the cherry on the cake. It's going to be fantastic. And endless negotiations. You know, he demanded a, 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 a more expensive flights and the, 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 the suite in the in the Savoy and the six-seater black limousine and the binders and all that, all of which I managed to avoid paying for. But he insisted that he arrived last. He wanted everyone to be in before he arrived. I thought, well, this is great. You know, this is gonna this is gonna really excite the photographers, you know. So they're all in, Spike Milligan, you know, the Who, McCartney. The limo turns up. I didn't tell them who it was. And they're all there waiting, you know. And the door opened out, bundled the minder with his, you know, looking like he was packing heat. And behind him, this extraordinary, tiny little odd man in an ill-fitting wig. And there was this terrible silence. No one knew who it was until suddenly someone went, oh, fucking hell, it's Dudley Moore. And that was it, you know. It was just <laughs> virtually nobody took a photograph. <laughs> He then went in and was very odd with everybody, really hot and cold. You know, he talked to Peter Blake, was quite friendly. They talked to, I introduced him to Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend said, oh, yeah, we met in 65. I remember this with you with, with the Ronettes and this, that, and the other. He said, uh, and what are you doing now, Phil? He said, right now, he said, I'm having this conversation with you. He said, oh, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> and then he made this speech about the, the, the Spice Girls saying that uh, Spice Girls videos, he said, were like porn movies, but with worse mu music. <sighs> So you were left with this terrible image of this mad bloke with his seedy wig, you know, watching what we used to call blue movies, his Alhambra Castle. Yeah. Very, very strange. Film. And as, as people like Pete Townsend kind of dealt with him, knew that there was a fair chance that when they dealt with him, he was actually carrying a gun. Absolutely. Which he did from, you know, early on. Yeah, know, yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, because Andrew Oldham's theory, uh, I think, is that is the what he was already pretty unstable. But what tipped him over the edge was the Tom Wolfe feature in was it Esquire? Oh right, so he, he's saying he's a genius. He was the he was the first person in popular music with you know the, the word genius was placed. When did that come out? I don't know, sixty five probably or something like that. Yeah, uh, you know the, what the tycoon of teen is that what it was the headline? I think it was um, little symphonies for the kids, all that was stuff. Was Brian go. Wilson being being? I, don't, uh, I think it was slightly uh, later. Maybe slightly later. Slightly that, later. Was Derek, that was Derek Taylor actually who uh, invented uh, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, Brian Wilson's yeah, genius. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I didn't oh, do it, him any favors either. It, absolutely. It's a, yeah. It's a really bad That's idea. It's, it's a bad idea, pattern, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. They both became uh, unsettled. Yeah, um, with you know, obviously, particularly terrible consequences. Yeah, yeah. In his case, planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, so there we are. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So... Uh, any other business? Are we joined by Alex Gold? We are Alex. How's things? You're in the snow, aren't you? Um, indeed. Well, not literally in the snow. Um, metaphorically, uh, it, it's all it, it, it's all over me uh, and outside physically as well. Yeah. You're in a winter winter wonderland up there in the Midlands. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It hasn't happened where we are yet, but uh, it's always the weather forecast says that it's coming in in about half an hour to London. We shall see. It's yeah. all around us, clearly. We hope so. I'm getting bombarded with uh, with WhatsApp movies of, uh, of clips of snow all around London from May to mine. So there we are. We'll, we'll... I can never tell when people send you a, a clip of, of the snow. I can never tell whether they're complaining or celebrating. You know, is it... If they have small children, they're celebrating. Yeah. Otherwise, they're complaining. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. If it's Monday morning, got to dig a car out or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a, is a serious business. So the air has been thick this week uh, with musicians complaining, Alex. Mm. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Alex Gold. Now, <laughs> with, uh, with varying degrees of justification. The, uh, I think varying. I... Varying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was very taken to this little clip of, uh, of mid-year talking about the difficulties of, of touring in Europe post-Brexit. And, and Midge is, is able to speak from experience because he does remember the time just about before. Uh, he must have been, Midge, you was born in 1953, so he must have been 18 or 19. Well, he started early, didn't he? So you know with what I mean? Slick and all that, would they have yeah, toured well, Europe? Maybe they did. Yeah, yeah. There, would have been, there would have been something, you know. Yeah. And what he, and what he says is um, very nice, very good little clip, actually. He says, you know, there used to be things called carnets. That uh, that you had to produce pieces of paper when you were when any band were crossing a frontier anywhere in Europe, uh, naming exactly every piece of equipment they carried with them, which in those I, days wouldn't be much really compared to. Well, that. no, no, this went down to the last guitar string. Really, so I, I spent a bit of time playing with various fans from the seventies punk rock world who all remembered a time before Brexit, you know, before the European Union, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> yeah, um, every, everything, literally everything had to be accounted for. It was a huge pain in the ass. And didn't they have a right to say, okay, you've mentioned this uh, AC30 amplifier or something, I want to see it. 
get it out. I want to yeah, see it. Yeah, they stay. had that right. Uh, yeah, if you broke a drumstick, you had to bring the dr- broken drumsticks back with you. Oh, really? Uh, uh, this, this, this is why. Um, yeah. Uh, there's so much furore about it because to go back to that system after everything being so fluid and so easy and so simple, it's just a complete logistical nightmare. And it's going to make it impossible for for bands under a certain level, and that level is going to be pretty high, uh, to tour. I mean, even at the basic level, you know, even when I was touring personally, touring Europe with the grottiest punk bands, you know, uh, in Europe, you're always guaranteed to get a sandwich and a bed, you know, um, so, and, and, and paid. Um, the problem with the UK, I think, is because of our... Because of because it's got such a rich musical history in, in in pop, the the supply is so far outweighing the demand, uh, and so you've just got this eminent overcrowding. And in Europe, there, there's always been a bit more space because of the geographical area is bigger, obviously. And you know um, there are various logistical factors which make it a lot easier for UK bands to to get a bit of a break in Europe. Um, and for a lot of those artists, that's simply not going to be possible as things stand. And I think that's where the where the where the um, um, where the problem lies. Yeah. No, and I I think they got a they got a very you know it's a really good point, really fair point. It's not something that they haven't been saying for two or three years now, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, I know I suppose at the moment it's not real because nobody's touring. No, there's, there's anyway. time to sort it out. I mean, I'm hoping that this, you know this will be a fluid thing and things will be you know realigned as time goes on. But I mean, even Roger Daltrey's gone back on the. Uh, on, on <laughs> oh, his, do, you, do you mean Roger Daltrey? That is good thought. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, Daltrey, for example, he's obviously staunchly pro Brexit, and he was insistent that everything would be fine because you toured in Europe in the '60s, so why yeah. not? <laughs> Um, but obviously, this has not turned out to be the case. So, no, no. You know, and, and of course, I was I was thinking about this in, in the light of the um, the fact that Glastonbury is is off for uh, you know this year as well. Another year, yeah, definitely. And so, uh, which is obviously that affects huge numbers of people anyway on its own. But it, it struck me that um, kind of name groups traditionally in the summer. They just do festivals across Europe, don't they? That's yeah. what they do. They do. They play at Glastonbury, and then they play somewhere in Belgium, and then they play somewhere in Germany and, and Italy and so forth. And it's based on the idea that it's relatively easy. It's quite smooth. They can work out how to get between those centres. And also, and they, you don't have to do a huge number of gigs to generate quite a large profit because no, they're no, getting sure. paid vast amounts. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you saw Dave, you noticed that piece about Spotify, didn't you? About well, yes, which is just related, isn't it? Because it is, it is related to this, uh, to this business of supply and demand, which is that, um, you know, there were also uh, the heads of the UK record companies were uh, in parliament this week, you know, giving evidence in front of a select committee, um, about uh, you know, where they were given a very hard time about streaming payments because. It's it's now one of those things that's got through to the MPs that, oh, you know, musicians are being, you know, very badly treated in this. And so and so nowadays your average MP desperately wants to be on the side of the musicians, even though your average MP probably hasn't thought very much about about the logistics of this at all. 
and uh, and so clearly there are a lot of unsatisfied musicians understand that but i was i have interesting background to this is there's a really good column uh, in music business worldwide just appeared this week by by tim ingham who's who's taken this whole question of streaming payments right on the nose and he said okay let's look at all the money that comes in to spotify from streaming and i think it's worked it out to be is six billion pounds a year comes in he says okay now Lots of these problems when people complain come about because of their uh, their relationships with their record companies. Let's let's discount that because let's say that Spotify don't keep any of the six billion. Let's say that the record companies didn't keep any of the six billion. Nobody else kept any of the six billion. You just took the six billion Gave it to the and musicians. you divided it amongst all the musicians. Okay, and I think you were. I think there's three million creators and artists okay so six billion three million creators and artists so just divvy it up you know the, the marxist style between all of them okay how much do they get each and then i think it works out it's just under two thousand dollars a year that's okay right. so that's not paying anybody's rent that's that's just not he said so Clearly, that don't won't work. So you know, let's let's take. I think it's forty eight thousand of those creators who account for most of the value and most of the use, and let's give them more. Okay, and so he works out that they get. I don't know. They get like a hundred thousand dollars a year or something like that, which is kind of more like it. What does that leave everybody else with? you know, $50 a year or whatever, because basically he's making the point, and here's goes back to what Alice's point about supply and demand. This has always been a business where there's far more supply than there could ever be demand. And 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 there's, you know, my, my argument, I, I, I entirely sympathise with musicians that want to be paid more for streaming. My question is always the same, how much more? Well, I've got a theory about streaming. Um, Go on. Probably going to be unpopular with, with musician kind, but trying to think about it as, as laterally as possible. So when you bought an album, I mean, how much realistically did, did the average band member get per album sale? Uh, well, well, if they didn't write the songs, not an awful lot. I mean, it depends what, what era of albums you're talking about. Well, a 10 quid CD, if I'm the bass player in a group and I didn't write the songs... How much am I getting? I don't know, 25p? Probably 25, not even okay, that. 25p per album. How many times did the purchaser of the album play said album? <laughs> oh, well. Oh, I, I know what you're saying. So, you know, but that's the difference. That's the difference between buying and streaming. But streaming I think that, is radio. I, yeah, but I, I still think that, you know, there's kind of a disconnect in musicians' logic sometimes. With, with, okay, with how undoubtedly. And, and also they're assuming that streaming is taking away something from them but actually no because I mean, would, would you have really sold 100,000 albums anyway probably not you oh, know, that, I've that's... got to say that there's a tendency among musicians and I'm allowed to say this I think um, yeah. in that a lot of them think the world owes them a living and it really doesn't. <laughs> oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. That's a, very, that's a very noble point of view to make on my, <laughs> as a musician. That's like a parental thing to say, doesn't it? You know. Okay, but you guys just feel, I mean, the situation is that you, 
incredibly few can make a living out of streaming unless they're really well but, established. But, well, except a, re- a few make a fortune. Few make a fortune, exactly. I mean, it's the same in all industries, isn't it? But, you know, very but, few make a living. And, and if you can't that... tour, if you can't tour at the yeah. moment, uh, and yeah. even when you can, you're not sure what the situation's going to be and how many people you can play to. And that, you know, going to Europe is going to be impossible. And then also live, my, my, my problem is I think that live performance, the novelty of that, virtual live performance, has really, really, really faded. Mm. You know, I, do, do you feel any proximity and any warmth from seeing somebody performing on a Zoom from their kitchen? I'm not sure if I do anymore. Right. You know what I mean? You need an audience. And a slight tangent, I watched the Eddie Izzard live show from Hammersmith uh, Studios. Oh, it's snowing. It's absolutely tipping <laughs> it down. How exciting. Have <laughs> <laughs> you got snow day? It's absolutely charging down. Big old flakes. How exciting. <laughs> no, but I watched the Eddie Izzard thing the other night. Really, really disappointing. You know, there's, there's a guy on his own in a studio with just a camera operative, and he needs an audience reaction. I mean, admittedly, you probably a comedian needs that more than, than, than a musician who's simply playing things would like some kind of response at the end of each song. But by the same token, you know, you cannot in any way kind of uh, replicate the experience of seeing somebody live if you do it online. It's just com- comedy is slightly different. In that, am I correct in suggesting that with comedy, you kind of rely on the audience reaction around you to justify your own uh, uh, finding of the joke humorous? Nobody wants to be the only one like, left yeah. in the line. You know, so what yeah. are you? What, you know, when you go and when you go and see when you go and see a band, what are you? What are you? What are you paying for? Music, or are you paying for excitement? You're probably paying for excitement. You're paying for excitement. You're, you're paying you know, room with a lot of kindred spirits. You feel the same way. That's the thrill. You, know, you go and see a, you go and see a comedian. What are you paying for? What are you paying for? Clever humor or laughter? You're paying for laughter. Yeah, you're absolutely. For what's produced? And if the, and if there's nobody there, it's not produced. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, you know. it's saying that you know the game's obviously changed, and maybe it's up to the artist to to, to find a way to make it work. You know, uh, I mean, we're used to this particular status quo, and that's fine. Um, but it doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean that here is right and here is wrong. You know, maybe maybe the 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 way in which the art is delivered needs to change according to the times, and uh, and maybe there is a way to make it palatable. Well, it has all, you know, if you look at the the history of, you know, well, you look, the music business, the model has changed I mean, regularly. For, for example, be... Liam Gallagher's stream on the on the River Thames, what, uh, a couple of months ago, that went down really, really well because it was really well done. You know, it, it is possible to capture um, yeah. capture a vibe, capture an energy, capture yeah. a spirit, you know, you know, really give... But you're only doing that once, aren't you? Whereas the idea of a touring is you can take the experience that you sold in Glasgow on Monday and you can sell it in Birmingham on Wednesday. But that, that model was built out of pure necessity because the model of touring was built at a time when the digital world simply didn't exist. And, you know, and that's still being perpetuated. So really, I mean, as relevant as touring is, obviously it is relevant. It is still a model that that was that was built at a time when it was a necessity rather than a luxury. Although, but just before this whole thing started, mm. um, you know, we've marked upon, uh, remarked about this in, in previous podcasts. I think Britney Spears was in the middle of a kind of fifty-night Vegas yeah. stand, wasn't she? So were Aerosmith, because what the all pirate- these people had discovered was 
we don't want to tour anymore. We're going to be in a place and people are going to come to us. So that's a paradigm a, shift. And maybe the other part, yeah. But right. maybe the other paradigm shift is not bringing the same experience to people in different places every every night or in the same place, but with a different audience. You know, you're playing to the internet and the internet's very big. There's a lot of internet. So maybe maybe the maybe, <laughs> maybe the maybe the trick is maybe the new the new paradigm shift is um, mixing up the experience you give. So instead of you know just plowing out the same thing every night, you've got to, you've got to make things slightly unique every time you do them. Maybe that's yeah. it, and maybe that's a good thing for the art as well. You know, for the creators, it's 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 a blocker to laziness. It keeps you thinking on your toes. You know, if it's done right, then surely everybody wins. Mm. But will will it be able to, you know, will this kind of shift be able to keep as, as many, as much supply as we currently have? Because like you said, go back to your punk groups that you were talking about touring. You were saying, basically, there's no audience for this in Smethwick. But if I take it to, you know, Belgium, there might be. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I they, suppose... so you have to go out and find the audience. Well, that's it. And, and, and historically, you know, the music industry has been one of extremes in the sense that you've either made, you know, in people's minds, you've either made it or you haven't. You know, there's no it's it, there's been a very black and white perception of how yeah. musician careers play out. But that's absolutely not true. I mean, in the past sort of 10 years or so, I suppose, um, you've had all these cottage industries springing up. So, you know, so where the dream, the dream has gradually shifted away from, you know, one day I'll get signed to, to be, um, you know, one day I'll be able to make at least part of the living out of this, right. you know, um, and it's become about what you can do rather than what other organisations can do for you. And, you know, maybe a development of that is, you know, I just need to be able to do it. You know, how do you validate success? I, I think that's what it comes down to, isn't it? How do you personally validate your success and that well, things are going well. If you're a musician, surely you validate success by saying I make a living out of it. I'm a professional musician. I just I managed to keep going, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting. We're talking to talking to Graham Goldman about this, weren't we, the other, the yeah. other day in Word in Your Attic. And Graham said there's not a day goes by that I don't thank the Lord that I'm able to continue doing this. Which oh. is, you know, very long sighted and, and great and gracious of him. But you look at something like Graham, that the fact he's able to keep doing that is is related to the fact that he wrote a couple of hits in the 60s, more than a couple, mm -hmm. and wrote some hits in the 70s. And so that enables him to keep going. Yeah. And he wrote them at a time when you could make serious amounts of money out of that as well. No, but I'm not saying he's not <clears> living <throat> on the cash, but, but the point being part of what he's trading on still is the success that happened then. Oh, yeah. And, and if you have success in the music business at any point, it keeps on resounding yeah. in some way many, yeah. many years later, doesn't this, it? This is why it's That's important the thing that to... nobody, nobody thought about at all. But again, I think a lot of musicians have a very black and white view of, of what success is. And, you know, they think success is, you know, um, playing, you know, playing my own songs, my own wares, and just, just doing that one thing. Um, yeah. And yeah. I can't speak for everybody, but what I realised pretty quickly was... I needed to, to decide what it was I wanted to do what, uh, in order to be able to sustain something that was going to make me feel fulfilled. And I realised that the core, at the very core of everything was, I just wanted to play. So um, I went from being a student 
who wanted his indie band to be signed by a record label and that was it to um just just try my luck everywhere and you know dipping into orchestras and musicals and all this kind of stuff that when I was 19 I wouldn't have no. batted an eyelid at because because I realized that, that, that you know what I personally wanted was not to um not necessarily to to ha have success with with my own particular stuff I just wanted to play just wanted to play which I think most most musicians still do. I'll tell you what the funniest <laughs> funny thing about this. <laughs> musicians, you know, uh, talk, and, and members of parliament talking about, you know, people in bands can't make a living anymore. And yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, but it, I, I couldn't help thinking, I don't remember back in the 70s or the 80s, back in the days of physical product and tour support and advances. I don't remember ever ever meeting a band saying do you know i'm quite happy i'm quite satisfied i've, well, I've got we've got a decent income coming in you know well, the royalty good. checks they're right i don't nobody said that at all i don't think it happened no any musician is going to be agonized by the fact that they should be doing better no matter who they are they still feel that they haven't quite achieved what they ought to have achieved whether it's in terms of commercial success or or or, or critical <laughs> approval you know but another aspect I think is interesting is that, wow, it really is snowing hard here, um, is that, um, you know, that there was a kind of business model whereby you were signed and you had two or three years to develop, you know, with a little bit of security. And that's gone. And I think that's really hard because you can't expect, I mean, what you were signing was potential. You were signing possibilities. Somebody might have some commercial success immediately. But the idea is by their third album, they would have got their sound. They would have sorted out the lineup. They would have got rid of so and so. They would have brought somebody else in. They would have got a commercial sound, and they'd be on it, and they'd be making a living for them and for us, you know. And that's kind of gone now. Well, yeah. it's gone because it, it, what bands used to live off was advances, and yeah. advances were, were gambles. Yeah. That's what advances are. Somebody's saying, "Okay, we're going <laughs> to give you 150 grand, out of which you're going to have to make the album and live for a year or yeah. whatever." And uh, I, because we, we think it might work because the model of the business was one act pays for the other hundred, you know, and so the other, the other, the other hundred. Don't and out of those other hundred, maybe four or five might become the big earners again. Well, but equally, a lot yeah. of those advances were given to people aged 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, and, you know, I, I think. Maybe that's one of the reasons there's so many car crash stories in, in in the music industry because you know you give you give a lump sum that big to someone so young and chances are they're not. Don't go out by any type Jaguar. This is it. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is the thing I found. I did some research for a book and and the thing that I found that unites musicians across the ages is that as soon as they get get any get kind them, of they pay, have to advertise paycheck, the fact they go and buy a car yeah they just they just go and buy a mad flash car who was i reading about the other day he bought three bentleys or something like this he could barely drive any of them and was never at home you know but it's just that's what you had to do anyway we've set the world of musicians to rights <laughs> <laughs> and, and nobody out be responding robustly to, to Alex's point that they think the world owes the living. I'm going into hiding. <laughs> 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 I, 
Get your tin helmet on. <laughs> Back in the bunker. What else have we got going on? In just, the world talk, just talking about re uh, reputations that last forever. I was, I was watching a Rick Stein programme the other day about uh, Cornwall. And, uh, and he said, I've got to interview a mate of mine who owns a, a pub around here. And he was a former member of Tucky Buzzard. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. I can't remember his name now. But there was this guy, Tucky Buzzard Dave, who had an album out called... Warm Slash. Warm Slash. That's right. <laughs> and there he was, this fabulous guy. You know, he still has, he's still, you know, still training slightly on the idea he was a member of Tucky Buzz. The idea that you, brilliant. Yeah, you, you can live on even being, I know, even being a member of the least successful group in pop history is, is, is a little bit of a calling yeah. card, isn't it? Even all it those was. years later. It's extraordinary. So, what else have we got going on in the world of word in your ear, word in your attic? Uh, we, 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 our most recent word in your attic was with the great Simon Day, uh, which just went which out. Which is out, I think. It's really, yep. really which good. Is out. As was the one with Samira uh, Ahmed. Samira Ahmed, yes. And uh, what have we got coming up? Have we got uh, further coming up? We're doing Paul Conroy next week. Well, we, we have a patron only event. <laughs> oh, we do. Oh, God. yeah, we got that, yeah. Mm. Yes, and on that's, Wednesday night. That's on Wednesday night. Six p.m. It's going to be re it's going to be fantastic. And we're Smash hits. We've dug out an old copy of Smash hits. We're going to revisit a copy of Smash hits. June nineteen eighty one. Eighty two, I think, isn't it? Mark? No, eighty one. We're going to leave through oh, okay. it page by page. Okay. All right, fine. We're going to go through it page by page, and you know, so we'd love news to stories, adverts, <laughs> adverts particularly. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're going to be looking at where you could buy a bum flap. That's right. <laughs> You know, PVC it, Adam jacket. Where you could get a Walt Jabsco badge. That's it. Uh, all the stuff that everybody wanted. And what people wrote to the letters column. And whether you could do the star teaser. All that kind of thing. So if you remember those days fondly, please join us. Join us. For join that, us chip in. For that whisk through. And bring an item. Chicken. We're asking people to bring, bring an item. An item from the from the nineteen eighties reminds them of that time. Absolutely, yeah. Any item from 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 that period uh, that takes you back, and uh, we'll have a bit of an antiques roadshow show and tell. There <laughs> we'll on be sending, there, we'll be sending a Zoom invite out to patrons only on that morning. So make sure you're you're right. Up okay, not already. And yes, make sure you're signing up by going to uh, uh, patreon.com slash word in your ear and uh, and find out how you could how you could get nearer the fire this podcast was brought to you by the word hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.